On today's episode of Heavy Networking, we discuss secure wireless planning and design with J.J. Manella. J.J. is the author of Wireless Security Architecture, published by Wiley in 2022. And this discussion is inspired by one of the chapters in her book. And so without further ado, J.J. Manella, welcome to Heavy Networking. Would you tell the nice people listening who you are and what you do? Absolutely. Hi, Ethan. Hi, everybody. Uh, so yeah, Jennifer J.J. Manella. I'm JJX on Twitter. Um, and for the past year-ish, I've been working um, for myself with my own company called Vision Security, where um, I kind of take all of the skills from hands-on engineering and networking and security architecture and, and marry that with some of the consulting and advisory services. And I work with um, professionals in the in the IT and infosec space, as well as you know groups within the organization um, for those types of decisions. And then I also work with tech manufacturers, uh, resellers, and um, distributors for kind of positioning within the security market. Yeah, and you you go really deep on this uh, this wireless security with all of that knowledge that you've got on the different groups that you work with and the architecture that you've designed. And this resulted in what I would describe JJ as a monster book. So uh, maybe the right place to start is for you to give us an overview of this book. What'd you write about? <laughs> That's funny. Everybody says it's so big. It, it is about 600 pages. Uh, my friend Adrian calls it a tome. Um, <laughs> but what happened was, is I was, I was trying to really be inclusive. And so the scope of the book is really for, for any technology professional that is familiar, at least with like, let's, let's say a network plus or a CCNA level of networking understanding. And it builds up from there. And so to be able to do that and to be able to address architectures and what's appropriate in security for different um, sizes of organizations and then also different industries, uh, you know, there's a lot of little sidebars for things like that. Um, so, you know, the book is not just a, a deeply technical wireless book, which is what I think most people expect it to be. Um, there's, there's, you know, eight chapters that kind of build on each other and it walks through the journey of basically network security from a security architecture point of view while adding in and kind of covering those more technical elements so that, you know, a technologist reading it knows how to apply it instead of just having the theory of security architecture. I'm glad you said that. I read a few chapters of the book, JJ. I haven't gotten through the entire tome so far, but I did read a few chapters in it. And in, and it came across that way exactly as you described it. Yes, it's deeply technical, but there's all this context that is wrapped around these, these, these technical descriptions. You understand as an engineer, having read a chapter, not just what the technology is, but why you'd apply it, where it fits, where it doesn't matter for you, maybe because your organization maybe wouldn't care about this and, and where you do care. So you walk away from it feeling not just that I know what this acronym does or what this interesting key exchange does, but also why I apply and why I care about this particular technology, which I thought was fabulous. I'm great that I'm glad that was your experience because that was the goal. I, you know, there was two pieces to it. Like I wanted to give everybody the information and the background to, you know, air quote, teach, teach them to fish as a professional, meaning give them the information to make those informed decisions themselves. Because as with everything in technology and security, the answer to how or what should I do is always it depends. <laughs> um, and so all of those pieces of of the puzzle of what builds the it depends um, are in there so that you know, beyond the extent of the book, people can make decisions on their own. But then there is also um, in the appendix um, and, and it's in throughout the book, there are areas that it describes a sort of 
low security, medium security, high security. It includes the security architectures and sort of best practices or recommendations for each of those levels so that if somebody doesn't have the time or just doesn't care that much, they can jump to those pieces and go, oh, okay, here's where I am or my organization is, and this will make sense for me. And it's very specific um, recommendations then. Let's focus on chapter five from the book, JJ, for the rest of our discussion today. I wanted to dive into this. uh, the, The title of that chapter is Planning and Design for Secure Wireless. And again, from that establishing context uh, perspective, if I want to know why I'm doing what I'm doing and then how to set all this up, it's a great chapter. It's not, I mean, there's other chapters ahead of it, one through four, but chapter five would be like a great place to start as you're trying to get get your head around the plan for secure wireless for your organization. Um, so let's dive into that. I got, I got, I got lots, I have so many questions, JJ, so many. Let, let's start here. I, I, let's say I'm an engineer because that is, we got a lot of hands-on nerds that are listening to this podcast. Let's say I'm an engineer and I want to do as little planning as possible because I like to, I like to just order gear and configure it, JJ. What could possibly go wrong? You know, or maybe put another way, what, what is the planning all about when it comes to secure wireless? What am I trying to get done here? Oh man. Well, it's, first of all, Ethan, I've got to tell you that I'm maybe pleasantly surprised, but definitely surprised you picked chapter five because my technical editors were all kind of like, our eyes are glazing over while we're reading (laughs) chapter five. Let's get back to the nuts and bolts. But I think that demonstrates the point, right, that you're making here. Um, Yeah. And so most people dive in, they get the equipment, they set it up and they start getting in there with fingers on keyboards. And, you know, I was a network architect for um, about, well, about 20 years I've been uh, doing that. So I get it. But when you work as an architect, and I think kind of really the purpose of this book is to start shifting our mindset from being an engineer to being an architect, because those are those are two different things. And so when we're a professional um, and we're a, you know, a, an administrator of a system or uh, an engineer or a technician or fill in the blank, we're kind of a little bit operating with blinders on. And I think an architect is a good way to describe the ability of a professional to understand the context of their, if they are in, in charge of managing a certain system or subset of systems, the architect component is how does this fit into other stuff um, from an integration standpoint and from a security standpoint, because we're, it's, it's, it's all about you know, layered security. And throughout the book, you'll see there's a lot of dependencies. I'm sure you've got questions about that as well with the design piece of it. But there's a lot of dependencies of, you know, if it's cloud-based, if it's bridged, if the APs are tunneled, if it's this, if it's that, the way that we design the rest of the network around it or design the wireless to fit into the rest of the network all depends on that architecture and all of these other pieces that aren't necessarily seemingly directly related to wireless. And so that shifting to an architect mindset, I think is really huge. And, you know, there, there's just, especially with security, there's so many pieces that are intertwined. Mm. You can't, you can't answer the question of just, should I do it this way? And should I configure it that way? It's, it's, you've got to look at it holistically. And that's what this book is designed to do. Yeah, it's about figuring out the consequences of bringing this new system online. It's about understanding those interdependencies and anticipating them and designing appropriately before you fill out the bill of materials and place that order. Yeah. Yeah, okay. So how do I go about planning then, JJ? What's what's the process? You describe in the, uh, the this chapter three stages and five phases. Maybe talk us through those. I'll absolutely do that. And and these are just, I, I'll, I'm going to be very honest, maybe transparent here. I don't love the words um, here. I just kind of borrowed um, some Six Sigma terms that fit with how I do stuff. And so 
most of this book is based on my, you know, direct experience working with hundreds or, or probably at this point, thousands of organizations, different sizes, different different industries, different expertise of the resources they have in-house, right? So some people, whether it's the network administrator or architect or wireless person or the security person, they have varying degrees of skill sets and expertise. Um, and so coming in as that third party, I think probably a lot of people look at chapter five and especially these, these um, uh, five phases and three stages and they're thinking, oh my God, I'm, I'm never, I'm never actually going to do that. But it's very comprehensive in the book to cover all of this, the different people that might be reading it, the different situations. But when you distill it down, it's really just about, um, let's take this, the three chunks of stages, which is um, discovery. And that's really understanding the, the scope of what you're doing. Um, getting getting that view of what you know what's what does this entail what am i supposed to do how am i supposed to do it who's involved in that um and then i'll i'll dive more into that in a second and then understanding the constraints and, and the characters characterization of those things as it relates to security um so I'll, I'll get a little deeper into these but that's the discover stage which is just what are we doing and, and what are the constraints we're working with um the architect stage being being a verb to architect something is really where we're designing the plan. And so, you know, we're talking about this as chapter five. It's probably halfway through or two thirds of the way through chapter five that we actually do something that may entail configuring a device. Um, and so there's there's part of that that starts to come in here. Um, but that design includes everything, not just the Wi-Fi piece, but the the wired components around it and how we're doing, you know, segmentation and security. Um, the security monitoring visibility there, and then things like domain services. So it's pretty comprehensive. And then the last stage is that iterate stage, which is really just acknowledging that, A, our first design might not meet all of the requirements. Uh, and so we're going to have to sort of evolve that as we go and, and learn more and yeah. test, but also that the technology is changing constantly. Mm. Yeah. So you can't just set and forget and walk away from it. And so the optimize and validate are, you know, the continuous improvement as the environment changes or the technology changes. And then we're going to complete, completely or ongoing go back and make sure that what we've done as we optimize still meets the, the scoped requirements that might've changed over time as well. So just to walk back through that. Yeah, we've got, we got the three, the three stages. We're going to, we're going to do discovery, which is figuring out what the heck we're doing here when it comes to secure wireless. So we're not talking about a wireless generically. We're talking, again, we're focused on security here in this context, but so we're going to do discovery and that has uh, two phases under it of defining and characterizing. Um, this figures out and sets up. I, I think, I think of the JJ as the problem we're trying to solve as an architect. What, what are we trying to, what are we trying to get done here? So when we, we get that all the discovered, we can move into the architecture stage, which you said as one phase, that's just the design and might actually get into some hands-on of, of configuring things and so on. Then, so now at this point, we've effectively uh, got a working system, at least in theory, and we move into iterate, which is, okay, did we solve the problem? Do we need to change things? Do we need to, did, were, were new things discovered maybe, new requirements that we need to uh, you know adjust for? And then, as you mentioned, technology changes too. And so maybe there's technology we should shift to because reasons in the security realm, stuff becomes outdated because it's uh, now vulnerable and it can't be useful anymore to us in a security context. 
and so on. And so we're going to continue to go through the optimization and validation uh, phases that fit under that iterate stage. So that that feels like a life cycle to me, JJ. Is that fair? Yeah, it is. And I, I think one important thing to call out is, you know, there are a lot of network and Wi-Fi specific sort of de design methodologies where we talk about, you know, validating as being, you know, maybe it's a, a survey, right? Like a live RF survey and, and throughput testing and things like that. Really, everything that I'm capturing here is you can consider it to be paper, paper-based work, right? So we're validating against the design requirement not necessarily testing, that's one piece of it, but sometimes it's just making sure we're checking the boxes if there are compliance requirements. Hmm. And so I think I'm, a, I'm an example person. And so I guess an example I could throw out here is, well, one easy example is we've got right now, we're moving a lot of organizations from WPA2 to WPA3. That's its own can of worms. I'm not gonna dive into that right now. I'll have a lot of resources for free on the blog for that um, that are out there. but. That's one of those optimized validate, right? So as those as those new security standards come out, the recommendations from compliance uh, mandates will be updated as such. So right now, it's very common for a lot of IoT and biomedical devices to be on a passphrase-based network, it, and specifically with WPA2, which uses pre-shared keys. Um, so we're going to get to the point where, where everybody's going to say, okay, WPA2 personal is not really great. We either need to move to WPA3 personal or let's go ahead and move these things to a fully secured 802.1x network. Hmm. And then there's this trail of roaming and key exchanges and, and things that are related to the actual wireless system design, including AP placement, that's a fallout from that. And so as time goes, so we're moving from WPA2 to 3 in parallel or in a different time, maybe it's that the endpoints we're using did not support the fast transition roaming, but now they do. And so we can move them from a pre-shared key network, a passphrase network, one 2.1x. So that's that kind of continuous validation and iteration stages. Okay. You remind me a lot of um, uh, my time as a consultant. I, I consulted for many years. And when you walk into a customer engagement, you have to deeply understand what's going on. And then usually after the project's done, you go through that ongoing maintenance of that network that you helped them build and and keep up with it in the way that you just described, whether it's moving into a new technology or um, adjusting things that need adjusting. And I think some engineers that support a single organization, they're an employee, they're a network engineer full-time for company X, they tend to jump right into things because they feel like, I know what needs doing. I'm going to order 58 access points because I know that's what we need and I'm going to, as soon as I can get an SSID on the air, the better. And let's, let's go, let's go. And there is no discovery phase as such when in fact you're building something for the business, there's stakeholders that need to be engaged. And then from a security perspective, again, all of these considerations of what the risk is to the business of staying where you're at security-wise versus moving to a new model and then the trade-offs of the complications of migrating. As you said, it would be a big deal for an organization to move from, in your example, WPA2 to WPA3 with business impacts to make that significant operational change. And so there's a lot of paperwork that I, again, I feel some engineers that just love to go for it don't uh, don't always do, but it it really is necessary and with some big payoffs. Yeah, I think there are huge payoffs for that. And I know it's fun to get the stuff and just kind of have at it. But if you can, and this is, <laughs> this underscores my my feeling and a lot of my work that a lot of technology problems are, are people problems. 
Um, and sometimes a lot of people problems are communication problems. Um, and those things are, are fixable. And I know that it's frustrating sometimes to, to stop when you, when you feel like you know what needs to be done. Um, but there's always somebody involved in a project who has some something that that doesn't get teased out internally. Either these two groups or these two people aren't talking to each other. Uh, their maybe their communication isn't isn't very clear about what's required or what's desired. Or a lot of times, more commonly, somebody within the organization let's let's say it's it's the network engineer is told by somebody up the chain or, or their management we need to do X and maybe X is something very specific. Hmm. And if we don't kind of stop and back up from that and, and, and understand what was the driver behind the request for X, we don't have an opportunity to do something better for, for them and for us and for the organization. And I think that's where some of the scoping and the discovery can happen where it's what do we really need and why? Because sometimes even working with peer engineers, right? Sometimes the engineer is asking me for X and I'm trying to understand why are they asking for that specifically? Mm-hmm. And when we back off of that, we we kind of realize, hey, there's something that's easier and cheaper and better than what they were asking for. So it's, it's a, there's a huge opportunity there. So when we consider design then, and we we know that the people, all the right people need to be involved in the conversation, how do, how do you actually manage that? Do you look at yourself as like a project technical lead and uh, do your best to figure out who all the people are? Or is it more like uh, you know, your emotional intelligence being you know on par so you can kind of see where some of the tensions are and try to resolve them? Yeah, I personally, JJ's world, I tend to, to try to do both um, because, you know, coming from a background of working, you know, a lot of times my work isn't just a wireless network or a this or a that. It, it's a pretty in-depth cross-functional, cross-departmental projects. So doing things like network access control, where there's a security team that, you know, maybe the CISO's office dictated, thou shalt do this. Mm-hmm. Um, the networking team is left standing there going, how, how do we make this work? <laughs> and then there's the end user support and application teams and servers and IAM teams. And so a lot of times there's just, there is already tension because somebody got voluntold to do something they didn't get a voice in it early. Um, that is kind of one of my pet peeves in, in the technology spaces. A lot of times stakeholders ask for that something specific or mandate something, and it's not going to work in the environment well, or it's not the best option. But they didn't involve the hands-on people early enough to, to have that dialogue. But I'm going to throw this out there too. As the engineers, it's our job, engineer, architect, whatever your role is, it's our job to be open and accepting to what they're trying to ask of us instead of just mm-hmm. being angry that they're asking us something that doesn't make sense or combative about it. And so that that's kind of, I think a lot of times there's there's these groups where it is sort of a combative situation and it's it, it's very tense. Um, that does not phase me at all. I've been working in, in that type of environment with with other people's people <laughs> for many years. Um, but you do have to kind of unwind everybody from that and, and get them all on the same page and build that trust back up because we're getting into get your buzzword bingo card out, you know, the zero trust deployments, which are real. And all of these systems are kind of converging, right? Our on-prem stuff, our cloud stuff, our uh, wired stuff, our wireless stuff, our endpoint access and our network access. All of these things take us communicating and building some trust. And so I think a lot of my work has been solving the people problem 
and building that trust with teams as much as solving the technical problem. Well, you heard it from JJ, if you're listening out there, you're going to have to talk to other humans while you set up your new wireless security design. <laughs> oh, JJ, so for everybody that's nervous now and doesn't want to have a touchy-feely conversation so much, maybe we should shift back to the tech. Uh, what, one of the things that cropped up here as I was reading through Chapter 5 is we, we do tend to think about greenfield deployments. You know, the perfect world, clean sheet of paper, I can design this thing from the ground up. But reality is brownfield. We all got some wireless infrastructure out there we're dealing with. So how does this reality of brownfield impact a secure wireless design? You're spot on with that. And I think I, I did try to address that throughout the book and, and chapter five being a, a great example of that. I'm going to challenge this because, you know, obviously having worked with resellers and integrators and all of that for years, um, I've definitely done a lot of greenfield. Um, but what I'm going to kind of challenge is, is even if something that we would consider as a network engineer or network architect as being greenfield of, okay, we get to pick, in this case, the wireless infrastructure, right? We get to make the we make we get to set the requirements we get to 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 do the demos and pocs we get to pick the right solution for us but if you look if you look in chapter 5 and on my blog site where there's a lot of of these resources out there for free what you'll realize is that the wireless infrastructure is is one of like 20 variables <laughs> there right and and what we can do with it and so even if we have greenfield wi-fi system we we're not really ever picking every aspect down to the endpoints um, mm. and, and the applications and everything else. And because we have to design around those things, even in a air quote greenfield deployment, we're still we're still working in a brownfield with constraints that we don't have controls over. Hmm. Yeah, ex exactly. Now you you said endpoints there a second ago, and I think um, that that's worth raising at this point, then when we're thinking about wireless architecture, we're not just talking about access points, we're talking about endpoints, and we're talking about applications that ride across this, and we're talking about users that are there, and so on. So so let's focus on that, endpoints, applications, and users. How do each of those relate to secure wireless? Because as an engineer, I could kind of push back and go, hey, it's not the job of the Wi-Fi to secure an application, for example, so why do I have to think about that stuff so much? All right. Well, I'll agree with you that I that maybe I can agree with the statement that it's not Wi-Fi's job to secure the application. But I'm going to put an asterisk with that and a couple of caveats. And that if if we're the if we're making the the transport mechanism, the network infrastructure, we're always playing a role, right? We're a part of that solution. We're from a security perspective, we're part of a layered defense. But I think more importantly, let let's abstract away from that a little bit. But when we talk about endpoints, users, applications, et cetera, we have to design, we either have to be able to have some control to modify those behaviors, or we have to design wireless around it. And, you know, I can be a little bit specific. The book is about wireless. It covers several types of technologies. It, it is obviously very heavy in the Wi-Fi 802.11 uh, arena with traditional wireless LANs. Um, so when we talk about, about that, we're talking about, you know, encryption, we have to do proper design again, which goes back to just having the APs in the right places with the right channels and the right power settings um, so that we can support secure roaming protocols, um, things like segmentation. And that, you know, those simple basic things that, that we're in control over does help protect. Um, and I'm going to come back to, I'm going to come, I'm going to caveat this in a second. It does protect the data users and applications in different ways. And let's remember one of the, Fundamental things I introduced, I think, in the first chapter of the book is in security, we we tend to historically kind of talk about um, the CIA triad, or I call it the IAC triad, but 
confidentiality, integrity, and availability. And so when you look at it from that standpoint, I think people think of security, especially you know networking people that think they're not really a part of security. But when you when you look at security, it's not just the what type of authentication and what type of encryption. It is the integrity of that infrastructure and the availability of that infrastructure as well. Things like backups, things like redundant uh, you know, controllers or data paths. So all of that plays into security. And absolutely from a Wi-Fi perspective, that that's critical for us to do it. Hmm. And it- <laughs> And honestly, a network by itself that's got some security parameters, that that's fine. But you always have to take into context what's riding across that that network. So in that sense, it's not – the devil's in the details here when it comes to wireless. Like you mentioned, dealing with secure roaming, right? Well, if you haven't you know, secured that properly, there's a possible attack surface, a possible vulnerability that you're not dealing with. And so you have to think in terms of – protecting the, again, going back to your CIA triad, the, you know, the integrity of what's going across there, the confidentiality of what's going across there, uh, designing the Wi-Fi network appropriately becomes critical. And you can't just say, I have encryption, that's good enough. I mean, you're not, you're not really close at that point. Yeah. And I, I think, let me be broad in when I say Wi-Fi design, there is an entire section probably around chapter four and then referenced again in chapter five. So in chapter five, there is a piece of it um, that is specifically designed for executive stakeholder audiences that are non-technical. The, the point of that is, is and now that also will be made available um, for free and PDF free to take and use to justify from some neutral third party uh, of why you do or don't want to do something, you know, specific. Because I think, you know, a lot of the the non technical stakeholders, it's not their job to understand the level of detail that the listeners here understand. But it is our job to communicate to them as best we can the technical um, pieces in those sort of non technical ways to 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 explain to them why they do and don't care about certain things and how that impacts them. And just as an example, so design and secure roaming, what I was getting to there is it's not just encryption and it's not just authentication. It's not just this. The secure roaming protocol, whether we can or can't use it, depends on, and you know, if you're familiar with, it's not called 802.11R anymore. That was absorbed into the 802.11 standard, but you've probably heard it called that. So that fast transition technology um, and this is covered in depth in the book with the way the Wi-Fi four-way handshake happens and the way after that the key the keys are exchanged on a secure network, um, both a, a passphrase-based network and an 802.1x secured network, with 802.1x being quite a bit more complicated uh, because of the key exchanges. So from a roaming standpoint, when an endpoint or a user moves from one AP to another, which doesn't necessarily mean a physical movement, right? You, you can sit there and your laptop might bounce between access points. Um, so when it does that, all in the back end, those key exchanges uh, are critical from a time perspective. It can take, you know, 20 times as long on a network that doesn't support not only the fast roaming protocol, because the endpoint has to support it and it has to be configured on the Wi-Fi infrastructure. But what I see most often is, even with all of that set up, if the AP placement isn't proper, if there's not proper coverage and overlap and the power settings aren't appropriate, that roaming does not work properly. 
and therefore the key exchanges break and therefore it breaks sessions. And so when I talk about the importance of design and how things are intertwined or interdependent, mm. it's not just all the little security knobs that are in the product. It, it is like from ground up Wi-Fi design. Well, I want to I want to dive into the uh, the iteration process more. So we've done our homework, let's say JJ, and we've got our first secure wireless design all created. Um, now we need to iterate on it. What does that iteration look like? Is it like like in a week would things change, or do I come back in six months and check on things? How does this go? Well, I think it, it's kind of continuous and ongoing. So certainly, when you get past the the first of uh, you know three steps in, into the design you're you're then going to do some tweaking because there's there's always stuff that's going to happen so let's say you've designed a shiny 802.1x secured network um and then because you skipped step two <laughs> you you did a little bit of scoping and then you went right into configuring maybe you find out later oh gosh well the voice over IP, you know, cloud managed system we just installed, these handsets don't support that fast transition roaming protocol I was just talking about, or it doesn't work properly. Uh, or there's some other weird quirky conflict where I don't want to pick on any one vendor because this happens with all of them, but whether it's Aruba, whether it's Cisco, whether it's Juno, whether whoever it is, there's some quirky interaction between that platform and this endpoint. And therefore during that optimized phase, we're going to tweak that a little bit, a little bit more. Or we get into through the design piece and we find out um, maybe something has changed, right? Um, because sometimes these these planning processes take a while. Uh, we're waiting for budget, et cetera. A group, something a department, somebody. Like, like, like a requirement has changed because of an organizational change, well, that kind of thing? Or? Yeah, yeah. Maybe there's new endpoints that got brought in. Uh, maybe hmm. there's a new compliance requirement. I'm, I'm eyeballs deep in CMMC compliance stuff right now. Um, and they just went from version one to version two of that before they even have auditors for the first one. And so we went from, you know, 40 items to, to over 100. Uh, so the requirements changed. Um, so that's part of that, that iterate stage as well. We already kind of talked through a couple of examples with that WPA2 to WPA3. Um, and so these, you know, these things are kind of, they're ongoing as, as stuff pops up. I think it makes sense to put a cadence in place. I think the cadence, it depends <laughs> what that cadence <laughs> yeah. should be, you know, because it, you can't make a plan and overwhelm yourself if you're a one man band and you're in charge of the network and the printers and the toasters and anything that has an IP address on it. Um, but, you know, ideally a quarterly or every six month review, we, you know, I, I do this with, with clients where we even kind of look at trending analysis. We pull reports out of their management systems and see, can we do things like, and I'm going to be, specific since we're talking about wireless, you know, can we do things like uh, remove some of the 2.4? Can we do things like go ahead and remove some of the legacy and, and um, you know, lower, uh, lower throughput modulations and things like that? Uh, so you're, you're constantly optimizing, even if it's not for security. But I think if this book shows nothing else, it's that every, every knob just about within one of these wireless systems in one way or another, has a security impl implication. Hmm. I, I like that you said quarterly, and then some things uh, maybe maybe twice a year. 
Um, quarterly, there's, and this tends to work better in larger organizations where you got some people that have the uh, ability to spend a little bit of time and focus on the stuff. And because in, in smaller shops, as you said, where you got one or two humans that are responsible for everything with an IP address, okay, that can be tough to just carve the time out of your calendar, even as infrequently as quarterly to make it happen. But, but definitely in larger organizations, having a regular time on the calendar to sit and meet with folks and review where we're at, and can we get away with things like, as you mentioned, turning down certain 2.4 gigahertz bands because of the the impact to the overall Wi-Fi system throughput and performance? Um, what, what a great thing! You know, one shop I was at, we did quarterly reviews of some of our standard security access lists. A simple thing took us like you no know, half an hour, an hour. It wasn't a long thing, but it was on the calendar. We knew we were going to do it. We knew we were going to go like. We had a border router and some firewall security groups and stuff, and we needed to we needed to audit them. Well, when were we going to do it? We put it on the calendar. We made it happen. Um, that was uh, a bit of iteration for us, keeping up with things. And, oh, yeah, we don't do business with that third-party provider anymore, so we got to take them out of the list. Things like that would surface that were were relevant. They, were, they mattered. It was reducing our attack service to get that done. Whereas we'll do it at some point. I know it needs to be done. I'll get there. You never get there because you always have higher priority and, and or just simply more interesting you know, things that you want to get done. So yeah, I, I like that. I like the regular cadence as you put it is a, is a great thing. I know it's hard, but one of the, you know, one of my little tips there is, and you know, I'm, I'm a huge fan of documentation. Um, once you've wrapped your head around something, just take the few seconds, whether you're typing it or using like a, a voice thing, um, and capture what it is you want to to do on those, you know, quarterly or six month reviews. Stick it on the calendar with those notes in it. Have it, sit, you know, do the reminder and pop up maybe the day before. And so you don't have to rethink everything. You've already done the work. It took an extra, you know, two to ten minutes to capture that. You know exactly what information you need to pull and why you need to pull it and what you need to do with that. And it it just really makes life easy. Man, I, that is it's just the truth because if you think you're going to remember when you get to the time, you know, what all the things are that you wanted to review, yeah, you won't. Write it down. Take a minute and write it down. I, my tr I use Todoist and Todoist is my task manager. And if I have those things, it goes right into Todoist because a week, a week later, let alone a month later, I'm not going to remember. And if I put it into Todoist, I'll remember to go, oh yeah, we needed to do this and here's the four steps. And, you know, then it's easy and it, it's refreshes, uh, it gets refreshed in my memory in that way. Todoist is my like it's like what I used to offload my brain because my brain just uh, is no good at 50 years old. I got to tell you. Uh, so JJ, when do I get to do a POC? I'm an engineer, man. I want to do a proof of concept and, you know, make things, you know, when in my, uh, my five phases and my, my, uh, my design, how do, I want to, I want to make it do the thing. When do I get to do that? Jeez, Ethan, you're just dying to get your, your fingers on the keyboard, aren't you? Yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I, I highly recommend yeah, and it's funny because there was a, some conversation recently in between Slack and Twitter with, with some professionals about what, um, like, what defines a proof of concept. And, and so, you know, was it the, the conversation? So I'm going to kind of use this broadly of a proof of concept could be something you do in a lab to test out, you know, a design or an architecture and see how it works and or document it. Um, it could also be, you know, bringing in equipment um, from a manufacturer and testing things. Uh Right, just to see if that if that solution is going to work for you and how it's going to work, it could and it can be in a lab or that could be a a sort of trial and a test area. So I'm using proof of concept of 
we're configuring something for the purpose of some degree of, of testing or proving out a solution. Yeah. And in JJ's world, that happens in the middle of uh, chapter five, um, which would be kind of towards the end of the design phase, because it doesn't make sense to do a proof, a proof of concept. Let's break that down. The, the, the concept being you've defined the requirements. What the crap are you going to test before you understand what the requirements are? And so towards the end of the design, now there might be times where you're, you're, you're going to look at, it, at some equipment or do a demo or do something else and go, does this have this basic capability? Because as I'm going through the design phase, if I, I don't have budget to do an upgrade and my infrastructure doesn't support this thing, um, then I can't, then that's a constraint. That's, that's part of part two. You're making a great point here, that which is to say, you don't talk to your favorite vendors and say, send me your latest wireless stuff and we're going to spend some time in the lab and see what it can do. You say, I have this business problem. These solutions look like they check all the boxes. And when you get to that point, you've kind of filtered it down to one, two, four solutions that you want to evaluate. That's when your proof of concept begins. And you've got a list of things. I'm going to verify that the solution does this, 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 and this that we defined in our first two phases to make sure we want to make sure that the solution meets those criteria that we've already defined. It's not is it cool enough? Do the lights, the, the lights look super cool in the ad. I want that. My boss will think that's awesome because of the way it blinks blue. It's <laughs> irrelevant. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. And and so I was, what I was saying is if, if you want to, if you want to do the fingers on keyboards a little sooner, there, there is opportunity <laughs> in the um, characterize um, phase there, because again, if you're working at the characterize phase is about understanding your constraints. Because as the architect, there's going to be things that you have control over from a design perspective. Maybe you can even use your influence with the business and the stakeholders to, to get budget, to make changes, to do some stuff. But there are always going to be things that you don't have control over. And so if one of the things is you're not getting budget, you're not going to be able to buy anything, no more licenses, no new equipment, see if we can do these things with what we have then you might need to prove out some of your design ideas or understand. So maybe your maybe your infrastructure doesn't support WPA3 without you upgrading access points because they're, they're legacy technology, um, things like that. And so to know that before you get to the design and you start working out all of these new WPA3 networks and your migration path, um, it doesn't make sense to, to get that far down. So, but in general, when you're testing something you get to that concept piece, which is understanding your technical requirements, and that should be towards the end of the design phase. Hmm. Okay. Our communication. I want to raise that issue again. We talked a bit about it earlier in the show. We talked about emotional intelligence and some of that and some of the people aspects of it. But what I'm getting to with communication here is more um, I'm doing planning and design to do more a new secure wireless uh, paradigm. That's a good word that uh, got overused and I, I want to bring it back. Let's use paradigm again. Uh, who am I talking to during a project like this? Is it just business stakeholders? Is it, who, who am I communicating with and why does this matter? It's really going to depend on the, the size and the scope. So, you know, if it's, let me take something basic in uh, healthcare and, and I'm using healthcare. This could also be fill in the blank with an IOT thing, right? So manufacturing, warehouse, whatever. But I'm going to use healthcare. So you've got a new biomedical device coming in and 
a lot of times those endpoints are managed or co-managed by some third party, right? The, the manufacturer Siemens or somebody else that's installed it. And so the people, you know, that you're going to talk to there is there's usually a clinical engineering team. They own those biomedical devices. Um, there's obviously different network um, architecture and security teams. There's different teams that deal with the compliance and risk requirements around those devices. And so understanding, you know, Things like, well, don't put it on a network that this vulnerability scanner runs on because it might knock them over. Uh, things like, oh, we can't risk putting this on an 802.1x network. The manufacturer recommends a passphrase-based connectivity, things like that. Um, and so that's one thing, right? Adding an SSID might be as simple as just, okay, we're migrating to WPA3 Enterprise, and I'm going to work through that. And I don't really need to talk to too many people. And then maybe I need to make sure that our managed endpoints have updated drivers. And I'm going to talk to um, the platform specialists that manage those endpoints and maybe talk to the help desk that's going to support the users when they call in after we've made this change. You get into larger stuff where, whether it's Greenfield or, or Brownfield, a new deployment, uh, a big migration, sweeping security changes, anything like that. Um, or you get into something where there's new installs. Uh, you know, I've worked with teams and we've managed many, many thousands of uh, APs being hung and cabled and mounted and indoor and outdoor. And when you get into that, you know, there's a lot of third parties and contractors involved. Um, so it, it it's a big, it depends. I'm trying to give a few examples of what that might look like in addition to the stakeholders um, and sometimes also in addition to the users. So I, I just had a thought uh, strike me here. So one um, network engineers tend to be personality-wise introverts, and the thought of having to to communicate a lot about a project that is visible because everyone touches the Wi-Fi in some way, they they consume it. Uh, sounds horrible. You just want to kind of get your work done and have no one notice. That would be amazing. So, so for the network engineers that are going, JJ, you're freaking me out. I don't want to have to talk to all these people like this. Is, is there a split where maybe there's a, if you are lucky enough to have a project manager assigned that the PM would take on much of the communication here, or is the engineer still going to be doing a lot of comms? Oh God, that's a tough question. Okay. First of all, I am an introvert. Um, so I, <laughs> let's re, let's kind of baseline there, right? I, I will talk to people all day long if I need to. Um, at the end of the day, I recharge quietly by myself, not dealing with people. So I totally get that. But I think there's a difference between being an introvert and wanting to work sort of with blinders on nose down at your desk and never pop your head up and see what's going on. And I'm going to be really direct and a little bit rude here. If your goal is to work with your nose down and your blinders on, and you don't prefer to grow beyond that, then you need to stay in a technical engineering role and not try to be an architect because you, you, you can't be successful. You won't be successful or you'll be miserable while you're being successful. But I'll tell you, having kind of made that journey from an individual contributor to managing a small team to kind of running a, a larger group and operation that it is, you know, I walked into that not wanting to manage manage people and I was absolutely terrible at it. Um, so same same thing with sort of getting getting into this sort of architecting position. Um, it is it is it was a little bit painful um, if you're not used to doing that. But if you are interested in doing it, there's certainly a lot of resources and tools out there to help build those skills so that not only is it something you can do, it's something that you start to enjoy doing and therefore you get good at doing it. So, you know, to answer your question, if if you want to if you want to stay nose down, stay nose down. Don't be an architect. Can we buffer that with somebody else was your question. 
and I'll say sometimes. And so, you know, definitely where I've worked in a couple of, uh, well, several large projects, um, you know, things that spanned months or years where they had, and they have different names. I'm going to call the technical project manager, somebody who understood technology and networking pretty well, but was not a engineer in their day, their daily life, right? A, a somebody who, who married being a engineer in the past with having project management skills um, and, and be able to help with that communication. So if you're in an organization that's large enough to have those resources um, and is committed enough to have those resources, because a lot of organizations are large and they throw a, a project manager proper without technical expertise into it. And project managers are amazing, but what they're not, that they're, what they're, what their job is not to do is to take your highly technical knowledge and translate that into non-technical language for a stakeholder. That's not their job. So that that's usually not something they're good at. So you're not going to be absolved in that sense because really you as the engineer need to be able to do that abstraction. Is that, is that the point I feel that a, a, yeah, I feel that a good, well, an architect. So if, yeah. I, I think a good engineer and a good architect have that skill set. Um, and that is something that to strive to. And, you know, I'm going to throw this out there too. I think communication, and that doesn't mean you have to go have lunch with people and hang out with them, right? It can be as simple as documenting things, uh, putting putting documents or, or guides together, um, clear email communication, whatever that looks like. I mean, some in-person communication and, you know, Zoom or whatever is great too, but, you know, the communication will itself facilitate a degree of documentation. From an, from an engineer standpoint, I can tell you personally, and I imagine other people have had this experience. Once you start documenting it, it's almost, it's kind of like teaching. They say, if you want to understand something better, teach it. Once you start kind of documenting it, whatever that means, it could be five bullets in an email. It doesn't have to be a 20-page document. Once you start documenting it, though, it really solidifies the thoughts you have as the engineer and brings a lot of clarity and organization into your thought process, which is a benefit to to you in addition to a benefit to the other people. Um, It also gives other people that are involved in the project an opportunity to help identify gaps or roadblocks. So maybe the example I used earlier of, okay, shiny new voice over IP phone thing doesn't support 802.11r fast transition. Maybe somebody else knows that, or at least somebody else was involved in the procurement that can get you those data sheets and you know that ahead of time. The other flip side of that is some of those other people will also help be able to solve those problems and roadblocks when you get to them. Maybe they have a workaround based on some other knob they have access to, right? Oh, the application doesn't have to work this way. We can go change the setting and it'll do this instead of that. And then therefore this thing will work for you. Um, So, you know, there's a lot of value there. And I think despite our assumptions that we're the technical people and we know everything, there are always things going on we don't know about. We can't know everything. It's not our job. Hmm. Um, And then the communication helps build trust, right? So we're educating the team. We're we're listening to them. we're, We're bringing their knowledge to us. We are educating them about what we're doing how we're doing it, why we're doing it, a lot of value there. We're not doing things in the dark. We're not making a change that maybe has an impact to the business or to the help desk at least, 
and not telling anybody about it. And that, again, you, when you do things in the open and educate people, just as you were describing it, right, it does build trust. People know that they can rely on you to be open and honest about what's going on and keep everybody up to date so that as there are impacts and changes to the environment, people know what's coming and they're ready and able to prepare for that. So, yeah. Uh, JJ, there's another issue here with engineer idealism. Like, okay, from a security perspective, if I can do X to make it more secure, by golly, I'm going to turn that feature on. I'm going to do that thing. But from a business perspective, that's not always practical. So how do you balance what uh, would make the most secure wireless environment possible uh, with what the business can actually function uh, with? I'm, I'm laughing because I have, a, I have a several examples here. So when I did a WLPC conference talk on, on wireless security architectures, you know, one of the things I, I pointed out to people that I, some engineers I know know this, but I, there were a lot of them that, that didn't, which is that there are a lot of organizations that choose intentionally to not meet a security requirement as part of compliance. There is a budget line item for the penalty and the fee associated with not doing that security control. It's, it's, and of course, you know, all of the engineers and architects and security people are going, but, 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 <laughs> but, but, but it's not our job to make that decision. It's the business's job to make that decision. It's our job to educate them. Here's the options. Here's the pros and cons and the benefits. Here's the cost associated with each. And if they look at it and they go, hmm, cost us $3 million to implement the security Cost us $750,000 a year in the fee if we don't do it. So it doesn't make sense for us to do it. Um, so that that's one thing. Now, just because we can do something doesn't mean we should. And I think hmm. understanding the why, and this goes back to a lot of the, the planning and that, that discovery and scoping time, you know, we have to be intentional about the, about the security settings. And so the other day, this is the other part I'm giggling. So just literally the other day, uh, I was talking to an organization that was working through just a, a barrage, a litany of convoluted ways to onboard BYOD personal devices onto the network in their in their building, right? So they let people bring their cell phones in and their tablets or whatever, and, and they do stuff. But here's the catch. All of those devices only have internet on the network. They get they get put onto an internet only. They don't have access to internal resources. And so, I don't know, there were eight people in that call. I said, well, then why? Why are we trying to onboard personal devices using 802.1x or certificates or MDM or anything else when we're putting them on an internet only network and you don't own them? What... What's the point? You know, they yeah. were pretty, they were, they were hell bent that this needed to happen. Yeah. But we rolled back from that. And I, and I said, why is there something else I don't know here? That that's probably, that's usually what happens, right? Oh, oh, well, we didn't tell you this other thing. Hmm. In this particular case, you know, they came to the agreement that a secure onboarding solution, because there's the cost of that, you're going to get certificates, you're going to get an MDM, you're going to do something. And then you have to have the people to roll it out and support it, plus the licensing, et cetera. That there was no need to spend time on that because these these devices were personal. They weren't getting access to anything inside the organization. And there was no difference with an internet-only network from them, the users taking their phone to anywhere else in the world and using yeah. it. And so that was, you know, that was one of the cases where let's solve the problem by by not doing anything and you know, just put put a guest portal up, make it open. Who cares? It doesn't matter. <laughs> 
Uh, it goes back to that communication thing again. Um, but I, I think that maybe the key point is that engineers sometimes come in heavy-handed, guns blazing. This is the technical thing we must do. But yet, as you put it, it's the business that actually makes the decisions. And it's us uh, in our role as engineers or consultants in many cases to present options in a way that the business stakeholder can make an intelligent decision about what that is and then go with their decision. You know, you may not always agree with it or it may not be the ideal thing or you know, whatever. And if you feel that the business is making a, a wrong decision, like I've run into this from time to time, where it's like, you're saying no to this, but I really think you want to say yes. Let me explain it this other way and see if you agree, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Kind of thing. It's um, a balancing act. And yeah. It, yeah. I want to maybe speak to that for a second because it is a balancing act. And so, you know, there's two, there's two sides to this coin, which is the first is it is a business decision, but they don't know what they don't know. And so if we're going to let it be a business decision, we have to first remove the attachment we have from what we think they should do and focus on educating them and let, letting that be letting that be our joy, right? Like instead of getting my way because I think we should do this thing, let me explain everything to them. Make sure, and this takes a lot of skill, right? To communicate what they care about and why they care about it. But then- so there's an appropriate time to push back a little bit and, and go, okay, you know, I feel strongly about this and here's why, like you said, great, perfect words. Let me try to explain this a different way because maybe it didn't do a good job here. But sometimes, yeah, you got to just let it go and not <laughs> be attached to yeah. that outcome and be the engineer architect. And there is, there is, you know, there is a point where you know, for me, I think being in the industry for as long as I have been working with as many organizations, being in constant communication with things like lawyers and CIOs and CTOs and CISOs around compliance, there comes a point where if somebody is doing something I feel is negligent, mm. and, the, and the way I kind of, I'm sure that there's legal definitions here, but the way I look at that, this is, if something happened, would a group of peers who understand this technology blame blame the decision makers on making a poor decision here or would it be oh well that just happens sometimes if the answer and and not everybody's going to know this answer and this is probably part of why I have a job if the answer is they were they were negligent and they should have done this and they didn't if i'm involved in a project i very very clearly have a document or an email that i've typed up that says look i'm advising you in this in this direction or one of these directions you have chosen this one which is not not only not one of the recommended is specifically unrecommended that you do this mm -hmm. um, and here's why and therefore to move forward with this if i'm if i'm being involved in, in that you know configuration or deployment i need somebody with authority within your organization to acknowledge this which absolves you know me especially being a, a contractor at this point um and an advisor it you know absolves me and you can do the same thing politely inside of your organization don't be a jerk about it you know and don't don't you know don't be like well i told you this or, or you're you know don't be a jerk about it We're, just word it very professionally of look I, I feel very strongly we need to do this or maybe we specifically shouldn't do this i understand that you guys have made a decision because of these other factors. Um, I just need somebody, you know, my manager or somebody to acknowledge that I've at least expressed this to you um, and given you this information and, you know, for my own protection if this, if something were to happen later. It's perfectly fine to do that. I highly recommend doing that if you feel like the organization is being negligent um, and you feel like your hands are tied with it. Hmm. 
Well, JJ, I think uh, we should wrap up with this. Can you give folks some other, either any like takeaways or top tips you want to recommend, or perhaps some other resources where people can go and find out more information? Like, for example, I think uh, you might have mentioned this at the top of the show, but the chapter we've been talking about, chapter five, people can get for free. Yeah. So uh, thanks to Wiley for making that available uh, for the Packet Pushers Network. Um, you guys will have access to that um, in, in its entirety, the chapter. Other pieces of content are available um, on my blog at securityuncorked.com. And that's a blend of wireless, uh, not just Wi-Fi, private cellular, um, IoT stuff, Wi-Fi, along with security, a lot of zero trust topics there. And, um, and, and so alcohol, I am, I'm with, I assume, if uh, security is <laughs> <worked. laughs> Yes. Yes. Although I have moved from writing blogs with wine to writing blogs with whiskey, typically. Um, but <laughs> oh I think the same same thing applies there. Um, uh. So that's a great place. I am putting, um, each week I'm trying to put out, you know, new content there, sometimes twice a week. Um, sometimes it's excerpts from the book uh, with things like, you know, graphs, charts, templates, um, Sometimes it's uh, something that relates to the book topic, um, but isn't necessarily an excerpt from the book, but kind of, you know, describes something in a more compact way versus a 600 page book way. Uh, so it kind of summarizes it more and then gives, you know, links to to different um, places to dig into the book. And then sometimes I'm doing um, videos and making those available um, as well. So all of that is there. I do also post it on, um, there's a Security Uncorked on Facebook. Uh, and then JJX on Twitter. Um, and then obviously link, LinkedIn um, is where I put this stuff as well. Very good. Well, thank you, JJ, for spending time with us today. And uh, hey, if you're out there listening, you should go uh, go get Jennifer JJ Manella's book. And what's the title of that book one more time, JJ? It's Wireless Security Architecture. Great stuff. Thank you out there for listening to Heavy Networking today. And if you're out there feeling a little lonely or out of touch with your peers in the networking world and you think all you got is this podcast, hey, there's you can do better. Join the free Packet Pushers Slack group. There's over 2,000 networking and cloud engineers from around the world. They're in there chatting about all things IT. And if you do go in there, check out the hashtag jobs channel. Maybe you have a position you're trying to fill. You're looking for a new career opportunity. The jobs channel, like the rest of the Slack group, is completely free. There's no catch, no abuse of your privacy or anything. It's just a resource we make available to the community. All part of the service we provide to you here at the Packet Pushers Podcast Network, home not only to this show, Heavy Networking, but also to Day 2 Cloud, Network Break, Full Stack Journey, IPv6 Buzz, and Kubernetes Unpacked. And of course, don't forget about our weekly newsletter, technical blogs, white papers, and more. And that's all available at packetpushers.net. Last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough. <laughs>